Welcome, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm here in Antalya with my wife, Courtney, and we are visiting the Willises and um, working with them for the next three months and exploring life um, overseas here in Turkey. Um, so we're going to read today from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, 1 to 7, and chapter and verses 11 to 18. So chapter 9, 1 to 7, and 11 to 18. It's in your bulletin there, so follow along as I read. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Father, we thank you for Pastor Robin and I pray that you would bless him as he brings his word today. Uh, would you speak through him? Would you speak to us? Would you open our hearts, our ears, and our eyes, and our minds to receive what it is you have to say to us today? Would you illuminate your word to us? Would we learn? Would, would there be conviction? Would there be encouragement? Would there be challenge? Would there be inspiration as we seek to know you better, to know your word better, to love you more, and to love people more? And so I bless him, and we thank you for this amazing time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So when I tell people that my name is Robin, uh, I often get the response, Ah, Robin Hood. That's what my capager said the first time he heard my name. He still calls me Robin Hood from time to time. I can't really blame him. Half the time when I'm signing emails on my phone, that's what's offered, is Robin Hood. The other half is Robin, Robin Williams. It's true. Uh, when I tell people I'm Scottish, um, I'll sometimes get the response, yeah, Braveheart. The movie, right? Now, Braveheart's a fun movie to watch if you're into kind of like, you know, people being slashed with broadswords and stuff. Um, just as long as you don't, you know, consider it as being authoritative on Scottish history, okay? Now, having said that, 
There's a stirring speech in Braveheart where, where William Wallace, um, before the movie's version of the Battle of Stirling Bridge, which actually doesn't have a bridge or even a river in the battle. You see what I mean about the movie? Anyway, uh, before the Battle of Stirling Bridge, at one point, he's, he, he's, on, he's on his horse before the, the army, and he says, you have come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? It's a good question. And it's one that's very relevant to where we are in 1 Corinthians. What will you do with your freedom? Over the last few weeks, we've been following along as Paul argues with the Corinthians about what is appropriate behavior for Christians. We talked about sexual relations for three Sundays. That was my gig. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Then last week, Jason talked about eating food sacrificed to idols. And underlying this whole conversation is this one nagging question from the Corinthians. Aren't we free? Isn't the gospel a message of freedom. And throughout this whole section, Paul's response has been very similar to William Wallace's. Yes, but what will you do with your freedom? It began in chapter 6 with Paul quoting his opponents in Corinth when he said, everything is permissible to me. And Paul's response is, yes, Your position in society may make you free to sleep with whomever you want. But is that really helpful? And does it fit with what we know about how God made us? Then in chapter 7, you have the other side of the argument. Some of his opponents are saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And Paul's response is, yes, but if you're married, you have responsibilities to your spouse. In chapter 8, his, his opponents say, we all know that idol worship is really nothing. And Paul says, yes, but you're still not free to do anything that would hurt your brothers and sisters. So now in chapter 9, um, just in case they think he's making rules for them that he doesn't live by himself, he takes his own life as an example of what it means to live in a way that puts other people first. In verse 1 he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Jesus our Lord? So some of the Corinthians have been saying, that you know, since they were wiser than average, more educated, higher status people, they were free to behave in certain ways. And Paul has a pretty standard response to that kind of argument. He goes one better. So when he writes to the Philippians to warn them against teachers who would try to turn them back to the Jewish law instead of following Jesus, he basically says, they think they're Jewish? I'm more Jewish than any of them. And in the same way, here he writes, you think you're free? So am I. You think you have some status? Well, I'm an apostle. Better than that, I've seen the Lord Jesus himself. Beat that if you can. 
Because clearly, some of them had been questioning just how much of an apostle he really was. Because he goes on to say, Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Basically, he's saying, if I'm not an apostle, then how do you even exist as a church? Because that's what apostles do. More than anything else, they plant churches. And he just keeps piling it on. Verse 4, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? Or is it only I and Barnabas who don't have the right not to work for a living? That's an interesting double negative. We don't have the right not to work for a living. This was a real bone of contention between the Corinthians and Paul. And we know that because it comes up again in 2 Corinthians. It seems that they had wanted to pay him while he was ministering there, but he had refused to accept anything from them. Instead, he had worked at his trade as a tent maker and supported himself. And that had really put the Corinthians' noses out of joint. Now, Paul wasn't unusual in being a traveling teacher. There were lots of traveling teachers in the first century, lots of traveling philosophers, people who, who you know, gathered students around them and, and taught. And there were various ways that they supported themselves. Some had wealthy backers who paid their way. And in return, the teachers would say nice things about them. That was a patronage system. For those of you who know the story of Pride and Prejudice, um, that was a situation for Mr. Collins, who was a clergyman who praised Lady Catherine de Berg, his patron, more than he praised God. It's also how corporate funding of politicians works, right? Something a little more close to home. So, you know, I'll help you get elected. When you get elected, you'll do nice things for me. Other first century teachers charged for lectures and lessons, and some actually begged for money. None of them would ever dream of actually working with their hands to support themselves. As I've said before, manual labor was seen as demeaning. Most would rather beg than break sweat at a workbench. But that's what Paul did. And the Corinthians found it really offensive. Now, Paul's point here isn't that he didn't have the right to be paid by them. He makes that very clear. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? When farmers plow and thresh, they should be able to do so in hope of sharing the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? Clearly, he's arguing that teachers should be supported by their congregations. Apparently, other teachers did receive payment from him. And Paul didn't object. Verse 12, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? I mean, after all, he is the founding pastor. He is the the person who planted this church. But Paul is very clear here. He's talking about his personal philosophy of ministry. 
not a biblical principle. The principle is in verse 14. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Paul's laying that aside, but you couldn't get much clearer than that. Christian communities have an obligation to support those who teach them. But Paul's point, actually, is that he's waiving that right. And he makes it clear that he's not being passive-aggressive either, you know? You kind of, you, 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 he's not writing this letter in the hopes that they'll make a higher bid. Okay, because he says that in verse 15. I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for, for, for me. He's not trying to manipulate them. He doesn't want them to pay him. Perhaps, perhaps because if they paid him, it's not a very mature church as we've seen, right? It's not a very mature church. And perhaps if they paid him, he would be under pressure to say nice things to them and about them rather than some of the hard things that he's actually saying in his letter because that's the way the patronage system works. He who pays the piper calls the tune. And Paul didn't want to get caught up in that. I think that's part of what he's saying when he writes, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. He's saying, I didn't choose to become a preacher. I didn't choose to become an apostle. God made me one. So he reports to God, not to some benefactor who pays his bills. Verse 18, he says, what then is my reward? He asks, just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. There's a lot to be said for Paul's philosophy of ministry, especially in the context of a church planting movement. Because again and again, you can look at the history and you can see church planting movements that were planting churches left, right, and center, and which then ground to a sickening halt when it was decided that pastors needed a particular level of education and needed to have a full salary from the church. Best way in the world to kill a church planting movement. I'm ordained in the Baptist tradition, which has a long and honorable history of bivocational pastors of little country churches who would farm through the week and preach on Sundays. William Carey, the founder of the father of modern missions, he fixed shoes during the week and preached on Sundays. He also, t- he also taught himself Greek and Hebrew while fixing shoes, having the books popped up in front of him. There's no record of how many times he hit his thumb with a hammer while puzzling over a Greek verb. <laughs> it's not that these churches didn't support their pastors, just that they couldn't afford to fully support them. When I was, when I was reading um, in in, his, in the history of the Baptist Church in, in Canada, when I was uh, studying to be ordained, there was this interesting tradition in the uh, in the church in the 19th century into the early 20th century, where the congregation would kind of love bomb the the pastor. They'd all they'd all arrange to turn up at the house of the pastor and his wife with like you know 
food and all kinds of other stuff and just stop the pastor's larder because they couldn't afford to pay him. But they could afford to feed him because they were all farmers. They just couldn't afford to fully support their pastor. That's our situation here at St. Paul Union Church. Actually, until recently, the pastoral position had no support at all. It wasn't part of the budget. These days, there's a housing allowance that's built into the budget. That's a good thing. That's a mark of a maturing church right there. It would be good to see the church move forward in that as well. Now, having said that, when Mark and I were sitting in the committee meetings to write this year's budget, we both agreed that that money this year would be better spent on the pastor search process. So like Paul, we waived our rights to that fund, those funds. And that's at the core of what Paul is saying here. Laying down our rights. Waving our rights. Because just when you think that Paul might be a little bit full of himself... He uses that same yes, but argument with his own conduct. He says, yes, we have this right, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Those aren't empty words for Paul. He put up with a lot. Ah, he was stoned and beaten and shipwrecked and arrested. He was thrown in prison, chased out of town, abandoned by friends, criticized by colleagues. But he put up with all that and more rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He had rights. But contrary to so much of what we hear every day, our rights are not the most important thing. There are things that are more important than our rights. Paul was a well-educated Jewish scholar and a Roman citizen. And he could have stood on his rights any number of times. But instead, he says, beginning in verse 19, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave of everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having law, I became like one not having the law, though I am free from, not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Where did Paul get this idea? Where did Paul get this idea that his own status and rights were less important than the gospel. See, Paul's philosophy regarding support was actually a little more nuanced than I've made out. He was quite happy to receive support from some churches, like the one in Philippi. And when he writes to them in Philippians 2, we actually see where he gets this idea about laying down rights. Philippians 2, verse 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather than in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself to become, by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I love that passage. (laughs) Jesus gave up the right to all the privileges of being God. Once on this planet, he gave up the right to a comfortable birth. The Magi looked for him in a palace. They found him in a peasant's home, not in a stable. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that Jesus was born in a stable. It just says there were animals there. That's a whole other sermon. (laughs) He gave up the right to be with his earthly family because he left his widowed mother behind to travel in ministry. He gave up the right to marriage and a right to a home. He said even the, that even the birds of the air had their nests and foxes had their dens, but he didn't have a place to lay his head. He gave up the right to have money. He actually had to borrow a coin for a sermon illustration. He surrendered his reputation. As far as most people were concerned, he was an illegitimate son born in a backwood town. But he went further. Jesus gave up the right right to life itself and became obedient to death on the cross. And not just any any death. The death reserved for the worst criminals of the day. And why did he do that? So that he could overcome evil and win the world back to God. He did it to make a way for us back to God. He did it for us. And this is who Paul followed. So Paul gives up his rights to a comfortable life, a family, a secure income, safety, security, because that's what Jesus did for him. And he says to the Corinthians, and he says to us, that part of following Jesus is putting other people first by giving up our rights. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those rights. It says in the Bible, every good gift comes down from the Father. And God gave you you the right to have a family. He gave you the right to have things, the right to freedom. All those, those are wonderful basic blessings. And they're good gifts from God. So why then does he ask us to give those rights back to him? Well, one reason might be because it's, Really, the only way we can, we can express our love back to him. When you have kids and they're small, they come to you and ask you for money. And then they go to the store and then buy you a gift. And then they give you the gift, right? That's the way it works. You're paying for your own gift, right? That's the way it works. It's the same with our, with our Heavenly Father. Right? We have nothing that he hasn't given us. And when we give freely to him, it's... Because we want to show him our love. You know, God owns everything. But when we give him what he's blessed us with, that's an expression of our love that gives joy to his heart. 
I don't know if you think of it that, in those terms, but that's what we just did when we gave the offering. You know, we, we only give back to God what he has already given us, a part of what he's already given us. But more than that, giving up our rights releases us to be the kinds of people who can change the world. You see, you can't do much good in the world if your primary concern is your own situation and your own rights. Your own happiness. If you're always getting bent out of shape because my rights are being violated, you actually can't do much good in the world. Because looking after number one consumes an awful lot of energy. But if you're willing to lay down those rights, willing to give up your rights in the pursuit of something more important, you can become someone who can turn the world upside down because you have nothing to lose. When James Calvert went to serve among the people of the Fiji Islands, I'm sorry that um, Catherine isn't here because she's Fijian. But anyway, when James Calvert went to serve among the people of the, of the Fiji Islands, the ship's captain actually tried to turn him back. He said, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go amongst such savages, he said. After all, the Fijians in those days had a reputation for eating people that didn't agree with them. I've always wondered if cannibals have constant indigestion from eating people who don't agree with them. Anyway. (laughs) So he said, you will use your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. To which Calvert replied, we died before we came here. He knew something about giving up rights. In Pakistan and Afghanistan... Marilyn laid down the right to dress like a Western woman and wore the hijab so she would be respected by the women that she visited and worked with. In the Wakhan corridor of Afghanistan, Alex and Eleanor Duncan laid down their rights to a successful medical practice and served among some of the poorest and most isolated people in the world. But the thing is, Paul isn't talking to full-time cross-cultural workers here. He's talking to a church a bunch of regular Christians trying to figure out what it means to live faithfully in their context. So this principle of laying down our rights isn't just for those who are especially called, whatever that means. This is a principle of following Jesus, the one who laid down his rights, is that we too should lay down our rights. It's a principle that should shape our personal lives how we relate to each other as individuals. It's a principle that should shape our congregational life, how we live out our faith together. So what does it mean to lay down our rights and put others first for the sake of the gospel? What does it mean for you to put others first for the sake of the gospel? How far out of your comfort zone are you willing to go to serve someone else in Jesus' name. There are some things that make me very uncomfortable. If you want a list, you can refer to my wife. She will tell you. And I've sometimes used that as an excuse, you know, not to do them. That's unacceptable. 
if Jesus lays down his, his rights for me, then I need to lay down my rights for others. For some of you, that might mean giving up the right to sit in a Sunday morning service one month, one, one, one Sunday a month, and volunteering to serve in Sunday school so our kids get to hear about Jesus. You know, I'd rather... <laughs> Dindy says amen. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, that giving up the right to sit here and be part of the congregation and rather serve and miss the service might be something God's calling you to. For some of you, it might mean giving up a little bit of your privacy and opening your home to invite others in. For others, it might actually mean getting out of your own space and spending time with other people in their spaces, whether that's their home or out somewhere else. See, each of us has unique opportunities to lay down our rights and put others first. Maybe God has been prompting you to get involved in some activity, some other person's life, and you've been hesitant because it would cut into your personal time. Maybe you need to reconsider that. One final word. As Meryl and I were talking about this a while ago, she said something very wise. She's good at that. She said, if you don't lay down your rights, it's all a battle. If you don't lay down your rights, it's all a battle. She's right. If you're always doing stuff because you feel you have to, if you feel it's always an imposition, then there's no joy in it. But if you learn the secret of laying down your rights, not only will you have a part in changing the world, you'll discover that's where the joy is too. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you laid down your rights for us. That you came humbled yourself, taking the form of a servant that we might know you. And Lord, we rejoice in that and we celebrate that and we thank you for that. And Lord, we want to be faithful to you, recognizing that the student is not greater than the teacher. That you call us to do the same kind of thing. To lay down our rights. That we might serve others in your name. We pray for grace, Lord. Grace to step out in the next step of discipleship. Whatever that might look like for us. Grace, Lord, to give up our rights. To perhaps open the door of our lives to others in ways that we haven't before. Lord Jesus, make us a people known as those who serve others in your name. In your name we pray. Amen.